Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's guest is Leslie Graves. Leslie is the founder and publisher of Ballotpedia. Leslie founded Ballotpedia in 2006 and has now grown it to one of the top 500 websites in the country, providing nonpartisan information about candidates, referendum, and elections at the federal, state, and local level. Ballotpedia has become the gold standard for election information. In fact, in the last election, Amazon Alexa obtained its summaries of the presidential debate directly from Ballotpedia. Leslie's career in digital media and civic activism has spanned several decades. She's contributed to academic scholarship in various publications and was active in the development of Rachel's Vineyard, a nonprofit ministry. Leslie earned her Bachelor of Arts from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and she lives in Spring Green, Wisconsin with her husband, Eric O'Keefe. Real quick before we get started, our team has a training coming up that you may be interested in. I'll share more details in a little bit, but for now, on to the show. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be doing this. Well, I really have appreciated getting to know you, Leslie, and just how much you guys do at Ballotpedia. In fact, earlier this week, I was on Ballotpedia's site going through, looking at the candidates because I didn't have that much information on, I think, six of them. And I got it all from Ballotpedia. Oh, great. That's great to know. Yeah. So if you do have an election, check out their sample ballot tool. It's really very great. So just to start out, Leslie, can you tell us how you got involved starting Ballotpedia? And did you start out intending to be a fundraiser and, and intending to build this big organization? I got the inspiration to start Ballotpedia during and after the 2006 elections. By 2006, it was already the case that if somebody lived in Buffalo, New York, and they wanted to find out what the best dog kennel was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, they could figure that out in five minutes on their laptop. But it was not the case that they could figure out anything about their state legislator, a local judge, their school board members, city council. Um, it was still a barren desert, as the internet was, as far as delivering that kind of information. So we decided to try to fix that problem. We decided to try to fix the internet when it comes to that particular problem. And it's a huge problem for democracy. And how did you start? Did you start like by looking at just like federal races or smaller races? Great question. We started out by covering statewide and local ballot measures because okay. we because that was an area of expertise of mine. And I knew that we could immediately contribute significantly to um, people's understanding of what's going on with a ballot measure. We didn't start adding um, state legislators and then federal officials until after 2010 and then 2012. So we gradually added all of the additional officials and got up to, at this time, we have about 300,000 articles and cover many, many elected officials and elections. Wow. And I think I read somewhere you had almost a billion page views in the 2018. Well, we crossed the billion page views total mark total. in 2018. Okay. We only had about 210 million only 210 million <laughs> page views in that one year. So it has continued to grow. One of the most exciting statistics for us in 2018 was that in the last six weeks before the election, and the six weeks is when early voting starts in a lot of states, the number of unique visitors that we had on the website in that six-week period amounted to 23% of those who voted in the election. So that's close to one out of every four. And our goal for 2020 is, is that in that six-week period, 
one out of three voters will be on the website looking for all of that information before they vote. That is an incredible reach. And it's almost like hard to wrap your mind around it. Did you think it would get this big, like when you guys started out? Well, no. Our hope was just to fix it for the little corners of the internet that we were trying to fix it for, ballot measures, state legislators, local judges, things that really there were, you had no hope of getting any information. And it was only as we got better at doing that and felt like we were really doing a pretty good job that we expanded to cover more and more candidates on the ballot. So it was very much a growth process. Did you find you had to have any sort of big mindset shifts, like making that jump from we're really good at doing ballot initiatives, that's what you know really well coming from your background working on those, to we can do this for everything, like all the races? Yes. Um, we gradually figured out how to learn things. Okay. So um, one of the things that our staff is great at is quickly figuring out how to understand a new political type of office that we didn't understand before. And an example of that might be a school board member. What's different about that role from any other role? And one of the things that they have to figure out is the reality that across the 50 states, there are school board elections almost every Tuesday of in every right. week of the year, practically. And some of the elections are held on Saturday. So just figuring out when the elections are taking place for which of the 13,000 school districts there are is was quite a difficult data task. So our staff is just awesome at figuring stuff out that no one else really knows. Wow. So it's like a big data problem, but then also trying to find the information on those specific candidates yes. in time for these really tiny local elections. That's right. And so it's not so it's quite easy to find information about people who are running for obviously for president, U.S. Senate, U.S. House governor. It's not necessarily as easy to curate it in a really nice way that makes it really easy to consume for the end user. So we got good at that. But when you're getting further down the ballot, it's simply finding the information in the first place. We're actually trying to solve that problem for the 2020 election cycle by making it very easy for candidates to tell us more directly than than we than used to be the case. And that's working like a charm. Oh, that's great. So yeah. they're giving you the info and then you're editing it. That's and making right. It yeah. They're sending us partisan. videos. They're right. filling out surveys. They're just giving us so that so that when our reader comes along, they can find out a robust amount of information about a school board candidate mm -hmm. or a city council candidate. And I would say just from firsthand experience yeah. this week, one of the races, I didn't even know was a race because mm -hmm. it seemed no mm -hmm. law and signs, nothing like no mailers. But there was a couple. I had no idea that they were even on the ballot. It was great to learn more about them on your site. Great. So one of the questions you asked was whether I thought out when we started Ballotpedia, whether I had a view to becoming a fundraiser. And I just want to clarify that the answer there is no, I had no concept about wanting to become a fundraiser. The only thing I was trying to do was solve the problem on the internet. And as I was learning that lesson about fundraising, I went through the, you know, the five stages of grief. And one of the, one of the stages of grief is where you think, oh, well, I know how to implement here. Um, I'm going to solve my fundraising problem by hiring a great fundraiser. Yay, I'm going to call Claire <laughs> at Talent Market and find a great director of development, and that's going to solve all my problems in the fundraising department. And it's 100,000% true that you need to have a great fundraising team. But um, as I really learned from the seven figures fundraising and, and really accomplished my going through the five stages of grief, it's on the CEO 100%. 100,000%. Right. And it's one of these things you kind of think you can be outsourced and that if I can just find that right person with the magic skills, if only. Yeah, right, right. it'll be, it'll work really well, which if the CEO is raising money yeah. and you have a great development director, that can be a great tandem. Yes. But they can't talk about vision. They can't articulate where you guys are going as an organization the same way the CEO can. 
For sure. So you need, yeah, it's absolutely true. You need to hire great people and you need to do it yourself. Both, you need to be firing on all those cylinders. One of the like big missions of Seven Figure Fundraising and this podcast is to help thousands of nonprofits achieve their mission with better fundraising. And, you know, in really being able to express their big vision for what they're trying to do. But one of the big challenges of becoming a better fundraiser is as you get more money in, you actually have to deliver on what you said you were going to. Yes. And especially like if you get a big six figure, big seven figure donation, then there's this moment when you're, what are we actually going to do? Right. That's something I think you have a really unique perspective on and have done really well scaling Ballotpedia. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you think about that and what a nonprofit leader should be doing once they get a large donation? Sure. Um, so for the first five or six years of Ballotpedia, we grew somewhat steadily from about $100,000 a year to about $800,000 a year. And that was not a stressful growth period then. But um, about five or six years in, I did get my first seven-figure donation and I really recall telling a friend of mine in the Liberty Movement about that. And I was so excited and happy. And she acted as if she was very concerned for me. And I was thinking to myself, why Why are you acting like this? Why are you acting like this is a sad event? <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> that you're really concerned about it instead of being happy for me. And then um, I really remembered that. And then a year later, I thought back, oh, now I understand. <laughs> Now I understand why she was acting like that, because the growth um, pains of actually increasing the size of your operation very significantly are, th you can't understand what it's like until you go through it. You just have to be really persistent. And what was like one of those growth pains that really stands out from that period? Well, the biggest thing that I think that I learned through that is that even though as you um, bring in more people, you might, for example, when we expanded, we had a full-time director of training for the first time. We had some, we filled some of those operations positions as full-time positions, business manager and so forth that we hadn't really had full-time positions in before. And my understanding of that is that molding those people into a team and really being extremely clear about how we would all work together is not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. If you think that you're going to hire a business manager and say, oh, hi, <laughs> you're the business manager. Let me know how things are going every once a month. Or, hi, you're the new director of training. Good luck with that. That's just not the way it works at all. So you really need to be very involved in making sure that there's clarity and mission alignment and, and actually that they know, know the technical skills that they're going to need to have to do their job really well. And for most businesses that are doing things that don't exist elsewhere, figuring out how to implement the technical skills involves a learning mindset that is really important to have. And do you guys screen for that now, like making sure the people you're hiring have that learning, like that growth mindset? Yeah, and I, I find it more useful these days to think about it as a learning mindset as okay. opposed to a growth mindset. For sure, people need to have a growth mindset. But I think it would not be unreasonable if you took a position at a company to think, I have a bunch of skills and experience. And when I go to this new company, I'm probably, I'm going to bring those to bear and we're going to solve some of the company's problems. That's why they hired me. And I'll probably learn two or three new things. I think that it's really like two or 300 new things. Right. Yes. Many new things. So many new things. So people need to be really, they need to enjoy learning and to feel a sense of reward and accomplishment from that. That's great. Now, I want to circle back to that in a little bit on just kind of the questions you asked to uh -huh. uncover that. But now you guys have gotten a lot better at 
you get a big check, you know what to do to expand and scale. Can you talk about how you think about that now and how that process has changed from, you know, that almost the condolences you got originally <laughs> when you got a seven-figure donation, which I think for a lot of nonprofit leaders listening, it's probably does not seem like something you would expect. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, the world's tiniest violin, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So one of the things that you folks teach in Seven Figures Fundraising is that once you get a donation, you need to enact shock and awe gratitude. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that we all feel incredibly grateful. We feel incredibly grateful to our donors for having meetings with us, for listening to us, for sharing their wisdom with us, for their time, and also for their money. But we don't always implement that. We don't always make that quite evident to them, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that Seven Figures Fundraising really teaches is, well, you better here do these things. They call it shock and awe. So we implement that now. And I, I love that. And just for people who don't know, that's a five, four to five step process where after some, a gift comes in, you want to send them a thank you letter, a thank you email, a thank you call. And maybe a thank you handwritten note from the CEO, depending on the size of the gift. And the reason and the rationale behind that is in case one of those thank yous doesn't get there, you know, you're covered because you have multiple thank yous, but also you're expressing gratitude in a whole variety of ways because they literally are partnering with you to make your organization reach that big vision. Um, so that's the shock and awe that we talk about in the workshop. Right. So I think a really constructive way to think about implementation is that you also need to implement <laughs> shock and awe when it comes to implementation. Okay. So you kick off that sequence of events in terms of expressing your appreciation for the donor, but you also need to kick off a second s sequence of events that has to do with making sure that those people at the organization who are going to be doing the work on the um, grant are fully well aware of what's going to be involved in it. And, and so it's extremely important to have a calendared out sequence of events. So how do you do that? Do you like do an all hands meeting? Like, how does that actually look like internally when you do this implementation right. shock and awe? Mm -hmm. So um, you do need to have a kickoff meeting, but you also need to have an, a, another series of events. And I have written up an outline on that, which mm -hmm. I'm going to share with you. And if anybody wants to write you and get it, they can get it from you. So, but one of the th things that I've learned about that is that um, as you are talking to the donors, you're um, presenting the big vision for the company. Um, if you come back to that kickoff meeting and you present the big vision to your implementers, that you have not even started to do the work yet. So um, a good way of thinking about that is if I am a general contractor or an architect and I have a client and they want me to build a great big house on a hill overlooking a lake, um, that's what the vision is. It's going to be the biggest house on the hill and so on and so forth. If I go back to my um, staff and tell them, okay, here's the vision people. We're going to be building a great big mansion on the hill. It's going to be the biggest one on the lake. And um, they're going to need to be able to see those sailboats at sunset and put in a sunroof, three bathrooms, big vision. <laughs> okay. If, if all I do is say that to my implementers, that that's not enough. So first of all, everybody at the organization needs to understand that there's a very huge difference between those words and a blueprint and specs. So pretty quickly, like very quickly, within probably 10 days of coming back from one of those meetings where you've secured a significant amount of funding, you need to be working on the blueprint and the specs. And you need to fully, everybody needs to fully understand what the difference is between the vision and the blueprint. 
So in some ways, it's like when you drive by these yeah. new housing developments, you see yeah. that sign that shows yeah. like this right. really pretty house that's going to be built. Yeah. But then for the actual team doing it, it's rolling out the blue, like figuring out what the blueprints are, rolling it out and like everyone stands around and yeah. we figure out how we're going to build this like beautiful how, house. How many nails do I need to order? And when do I need to have them delivered to the work site? All that stuff needs to be figured out. And the faster you figure it out, the better. And the f- faster everybody at the organization understands what a fully articulated plan looks like, the better. We couldn't live without Gantt charts. Mm-hmm. So people also just need to know how to sequence all of the implementation steps out in phases and do a Gantt chart on them. So getting really serious about all of that, I think is just really important. So what's the next step? Like you bring the people together, you've kind of decided on being very specific on how to implement. How do you do you have leadership meet together first and then it flows down to the rest of the team? Or like, how do you actually figure out those specific actions that need to be taken? Right. So at our company, right, the leadership meets and mm-hmm. then they go forth and they have meetings with their teams and they're going to come back from that with to a meeting with me and present what looks like the blueprints and the specs. Then we're going to workshop that. And I'm going to, I'm going to say these, this indicates that you're planning on building 16 Adirondack chairs and painting them aqua blue. No, (laughs) (laughs) 25 and they're supposed to be yellow or whatever. You know, you have an opportunity Mm -hmm. to um, figure out where there's been any kind of a misunderstanding at all. And again, all of that needs to be cleared up and extreme clarity needs to be achieved ideally within four to six weeks of when you're kicking it off. One of the things you also need to know and the implementation team needs to know is when you expect to be going back to your donor with your first, second, and third reports. It's not just at the end of the year for most people. So interim reports to the donor, I'm, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to need to know something about what's going on by September 15th or whatever. And that's one reason that Gantt charts are really great. Right. And then you're also understanding like I might, if this takes six months to get mm-hmm. runway to really get going, right. I need to set expectations with this donor right. well ahead of time. So it doesn't look like we're not executing when it's just a process that's going to take a long time. Yeah. Um, my dad was a landscape architect and okay. he also, in, in the last stages of his career, designed golf courses. And he told me once something I thought was really important. He said that you need to tell your golf course client that the golf course is going to look terrible after the first year, like just not at all what they thought they paid for. Terrible. (laughs) Because it doesn't really do what's called grow in until the second year. So they'll be happy when they walk around the golf course at the end of two years, but they will think that you did something terrible at the end of one year. And so you need to set that expectation with the people who are paying you to build the golf course before you start building it. Right. Well, that's such great advice because you think about how if you were walking around that golf course, all the things that would irritate you and start being this giant list of yes. everything that's wrong. It's yes. like, yeah. oh, he told me this was going to be this way. Right. It'll be better next year. <laughs> you know, like uh, yeah. it's just completely different. Or you think, yeah. oh, I'm going to really love walking around next year when all these little things are taken care of. Yes. Yep. So just moving on the next step in the process, you've had the meeting, your executive team has gone to their teams, they've come back with, here's our plans to get this done. Mm-hmm. They, You, as a CEO and your leadership team, you guys make adjustments, you tweak the strategy, and then what's the next step? Right. So then you need to have a reporting schedule set up, which is if you feel a little bit... Um, uh, 
not 100% certain that there is extreme clarity, then you probably want to have a reporting schedule of a month every month. Mm-hmm. Um, or with some where it's not all that complicated, maybe once a quarter. The best system that we use is that we have them report to us on the, the simple red, yellow, green mm-hmm. light system. So every month, if they're coming back to me or once a quarter, what I want to know is, are, you know, everything you said you were going to do by this time on the Gantt chart, is it happening? Right. And what things are a red, red or yellow? Just tell me about those. And do you think like, just to play devil's advocate a little bit here, like when you're going into something that you've never done before as a nonprofit, it's really easy to be, or at least as a CEO, to be really over-optimistic on how quick things can get done. How do you balance that with like staff sometimes we might be more realistic on how long it takes, but like they also sometimes need to see the bigger vision, like that it maybe it could be done faster or maybe we just need to put more resources. How do you kind of weigh those two dynamics? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I would say that about Pedia, sometimes I'm the one that thinks it's going to take a long time. And, oh, and, and maybe my editor in chief thinks, no problem, I'll, I'll get it done in a month. And at other times I'm, I'm on the other side of that question. So what you need to really have is a complete attitude of act, learn, adjust. So that's what the point of those weekly or monthly or quarterly check-ins in is to get to reality. Those meetings need to be, I think, really concrete. Can you walk us through what one of those meetings would look like at Ballopedia? Sure. So what we would have is a set of expected deliverables, and that's going to, we use so many spreadsheets, it's not even funny. So maybe the expected deliverables that should have been done by um, the end of the third quarter are 22 different things, and that's going to look like 22 different rows on a spreadsheet. So for each of the 22 different rows on a spreadsheet, it's either going to be a red light, a yellow light, or a green light. So the person who's showing up, who's the person in charge and is reporting in on that, they're just going to literally go right through those 22 rows. And can everyone access this information so it's mm-hmm. like highly yeah. transparent in your organization? Yes. Mm-hmm. And when you started implementing this, did you find like, how did the staff respond? Did they like it? Did it give them certainty? Or did it was it an adjustment period for some of them? It was an adjustment period. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that concrete specificity is, is the, is the best thing ever. Right. And, but the degree of concrete specificity that, that is helpful. I think I've learned a lot, a lot of lessons about that over time. And what, and the, what are some me, of those I'm, lessons? I'm not, um, I'm not looking at everything. Mm-hmm. So if I, if like our editor in chief is reporting to me, he's seen much more detailed um, lists from his people. You just need the lessons that we have learned is that you cannot be too careful and ruthless about knowing what exactly is going on. It's not micromanaging. It's mm-hmm. just knowing on a concrete level what's actually happening. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our upcoming seven-figure fundraising workshop this February 26th through 28th in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll be teaching the seven-figure fundraising system and how to grow your existing major donors and find new ones. This is an intimate workshop where we limit it just to 24 people so you can have one-on-one coaching so you can leave feeling confident knowing exactly what to say at your next donor meeting. Here's what some of our past attendees have said. Best thing I've ever done. I am so excited to have learned even more than I thought I could ever know. I've been reminded just how much I've forgotten about fundraising, about fundamental habits, developing consistency, thinking of new ways to attack the same problem. It's all covered in the seven-figure fundraising workshops. I recommend them highly. 
the coaching has been phenomenal, unlike anything I've been a part of in, in a dozen years of fundraising. This workshop is crucial if you really want to grow your nonprofit, and it's worth the time, the energy, and the money because you're making a true investment into your nonprofit organization, and most importantly, into you, the person who's executing it. This is going to make my life a lot easier because now I have the tools necessary to be more successful. To learn more, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com where you can sign up for the workshop or schedule a call with me to answer any questions you have about the workshop. I hope you'll join us in February. Now, back to the interview. So someone listening to this might think it sounds a little like micromanaging. Yeah, they might. Can they you, might. <laughs> uh, can you just expi- like, explain that in a little more nuanced uh, detail, like how it's not that way and like what you're trying to measure like, is it outcomes? Is it, there's that whole theory on like you track lead indicators, not lag indicators. Like, how do you like break up these right. individual great. tasks? Yeah, great point. So we're very, we're well aware of leading indicators and lagging indicators. Mm-hmm. So for example, at Ballotpedia, the amount of traffic we get in a given year, that's totally a lagging indicator. Right. We enjoy looking at it and that's a lot of fun, but it's all the hundreds and thousands of other things you do that result in having a lot of people who want to read your content. So most of the things that we're tracking as as a project is unfolding are leading indicators. We have to get really good at understanding what one of those looks like, which is the effort and thought that you're putting into building up the project. I think the difference between sort of a lot of concrete specificity versus micromanaging is that I am not interested in telling them how to get from point A to point B. I am interested in helping them think about where they might be struggling. And let's say we're looking at that that hypothetical list of 22 deliverables. Only one or two of them typically is going to be struggling. Mm-hmm. And then we, we, so we'll just blow past all the other 20 and then we'll spend all of our time talking about those two that aren't working. And that's just a very genuine uh, workshop. They, they probably know more than I do about how to solve it. So it's just really mutual coaching around how to maybe solve that problem. Right. And just taking the time to think intently on solving a business problem or mm-hmm. like an operational problem that you have. Right. Which is one of those things like I think most companies, like it's easy to ignore the problems mm-hmm. and you focus on the things you do well and you don't take that time to say, okay, these are the two things in my job I'm not doing a good job at. How can I figure out either new strategies, new mindsets, or like actually doing it differently? Yeah. So one of the uh, growth edges at our company this year has been trying to strategize who outside the company might not might know how to solve the problem because I might have zero clue what to do. Maybe no one at our company knows how to do it because it's a really interesting new challenge that we've never encountered before. So what we're trying to get good at now is figuring out how to find somebody outside the company who knows how to fix it. That's great. And have you found that there's certain industries that nonprofits wouldn't necessarily think to look look at that you found solutions or is it more, well, I guess just where have you found solutions? Let's say that we had a a budgeting problem. And I'm trying to figure out how to expand our budget in the middle of the year. And so upsize a budget in the middle of the year without getting into an overspending situation. So I I might ask other people in this movement, um, but they might not have had that experience or whatever they did might not work. So then as soon as you think about that, you're like, well, heck, tens of thousands of small companies have had to figure that out. There has to be somebody out there that knows how to do this. Who might that be and figure that out? Yeah. Right. And it's that's so true because like all these different companies, they yeah. have a superpower in like one or two areas where they right. can really help you out. Specifically, if they've dealt with quick growth or 
adding on a big new division or something like that. I think one of the interesting things, just thinking about everything you've said so far about planning and process. And one of the frustrating things I've found is like trying to grow a business, um, not a nonprofit, but a business is you feel like you're always working on problems. But one of the interesting things I've learned like in the past year is this whole idea of thinking in systems and that the growth of any organization or system tends to be limited. Uh, you tend to grow until you reach a limiting factor. And that's why it feels like you're always working on problems because you're usually working on the limiting factor to your growth. Have you found that to be true with your own organization and as you've developed these more concrete systems and concrete deliverables? Yes. And sadly and reg- regrettably, um, the limiting factor is always me, right? Okay. So we have four departments. We've got our our operations department, our editorial department, our communications department, and our fundraising. And at any one point in time, one or the other of them doesn't quite know how to move forward to meet whatever the new challenge of the day is. And well, neither do I. So I mean, (laughs) so I'm the limiting factor. We don't want to tell anyone that, right? (laughs) Right. So I'm the limiting factor. And we all are. We just don't know what we're doing yet. So figuring out how to figure it out is is how you get past those challenges. And that's such an important point. I think sometimes you think the person running the $5 million nonprofit has it all figured out and they had it all figured out when there was 500,000. But most of the time, it's educated guessing mm-hmm. and being directionally accurate. But it's very hard to ever have a precise plan of what to do next. Oh, sure. So for example, we do about 15 different um, e-newsletters. So we have the encyclopedia that people visit, but we have a lot of different e-newsletters for different target audiences. So then you have to think about open rates and they all have different open rates. Well, if I'm looking at the one that has the lowest open rate and I'm trying to figure out how to boost its open rate, there's no reason that the brilliant people in our communications department should have any particular clue about how to do that. Neither do I. But we figured out a lot about it over the last two years. And now they're probably um, in the top 5% in the country in terms of how to figure stuff like that out. But we sure weren't when we started. I don't expect people on our staff to know stuff like that that no one else knows how to do either, right? right? I mean, it's kind of a hard problem. And do you find like when you said you're usually the limiting factor... Like, first off, that's I appreciate you being that honest and like not trying to pretend like you have it all figured out. But do you find it's more like a technical side, a mindset difference or what do you or has it changed throughout the years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that everybody probably chronically needs mindset uh, adjustments mm-hmm. and we we get them. I have an executive coach who is chronically adjusting my mindset. <laughs> um, and I also get that from other people in the liberty movement, like from Tarrant. So I get a lot of adjustment in my mindset. Sure. Um, but I think if you have solved that problem, if, if you feel like you're getting plenty of that, then you need to really focus on what I call technical coaching. And that is actually figuring out how to solve the actual problem. And that would be the difference between mindset coaching and technical coaching is your head coach might tell you that you need to build up your upper body strength to succeed on the team this year. But they're not going to go into the gym with you and tell you what exercises to do on which machines and how often and how many reps. And then you start doing and they're like, you're not doing that right, fool. (laughs) This is how to do it. That's technical coaching. I, I think that for us, many times that our limiting factor is that technical coaching. So finding somebody else at the company that can do that for you or finding somebody outside the company who can technically coach. Very much a limiting factor. 
I love that distinction. Like I've never heard anyone put it that way, but like, I think a lot of coaching industry is mindset, which is important, Mm -hmm. but that technical side is such an important piece. And I just really like the way you frame that. That's really a good way to think about it. Are there some examples of where you brought in technical coaching that's been successful, like say in the last year, year and a half? Yeah, I would say that um, we have actually learned how to technically coach each other. So one of the big innovations we've made in the last year is that we do something called the there here path when we are setting out on a project or a goal. So um, that means getting really linear about exactly what the goal is. That's like those 22 rows on the spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And then um, where are we at right now? Do we know how to do any of those 22 things? That's the here statement. And then once you have achieved clarity on the there statement and the here statement, then you figure out how you're going to get what the path is. Mm -hmm. So we became really clear about how to exactly write out a very detailed there, here, path statement about a year ago. It's made everybody's life so much easier. So we technically coach each other on that. So there isn't anybody outside the company that we can hire to call in and walk us through that process. But we do that for each other because some of those things, like you might know exactly how to do biceps curls, but you might not feel like doing them. Right. right? So yeah. maybe you need somebody to go into the gym and stand there and watch you do those biceps curls because you just don't feel like it. Right. So I we think, all have aspects of our job that are like that. <laughs> right. So what we're trying to do is have a um, theory that if those two things in your inbox that you somehow magically have failed to do by Friday at 5 p.m., that the answer to that is you just need technical coaching. Find mm-hmm. somebody else here at the company who will agree to go into the gym with you on Monday at 10 a.m. and knock that out with you for 45 minutes and it won't be in your inbox anymore. That really works for us. Right. And that's such it's such positive framing on that mm-hmm. where it can be this big negative thing like there's a lot of self-talk probably everyone has on those things that mm-hmm. we're not good at or we don't like doing. Mm-hmm. And instead of making it like you're a bad person because you're not doing it, it's you just need some help and providing a structure and a system for helping. Somebody stand that. there with you while you're doing it. Right. I mean, isn't that really how we grow in a lot of areas in life? Right. Right. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't pain the person who's standing there watching you do <laughs> sit-ups. Right. No, it's, it's no problem for them to do that. They're often glad, because you just want a little company while you're figuring out these kind of tough technical problems. Right. And how'd you come up with this there, here framework? I've never heard of that before. That is through a coaching program that we did many years ago called Great Leaders. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because we learned about it, but we didn't actually do it. Such a common like problem, every, right? a lot of business books you, when you right, read you, it. Like, you this is all these great. Business, yeah, yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, I should do that. Yeah. Or you go away on a, on a weekend retreat and you come back like, I should be nice to my husband every single day of the week, but do you actually do it? Well, of course I do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, we hear all those ideas, but do we actually do them? That's one of the things that we're getting much better at at Ballotpedia is actually doing the things. And to do the thing, you need to create a structure and a reliable way of doing it. So that's what our innovation was with their here path is to actually create a completely proceduralized way of doing it. So can we like nerd out for a second and just sure. like walk yeah. through what that looks like? Because this is fascinating and I haven't. Oh, sure. So um, we have a template. Mm-hmm. Everything at Ballotpedia lives on spreadsheets. And so it's the there here path template It has five tabs on it. The second tab is called the there statements The you know, they all have their little tabs. So the first thing that you do is somebody says, okay, Jeff, um, what do you, this project that we're talking about, what do you think the there statements are? What do you think this project is actually going to look like if it wins? So he, he'll type up five or six things on there and then he mm-hmm. gives that back to me, or this could be two other people at the company. 
And then well, I'll look at it. And I'll be like, well, you, you nailed it. You got it. That, mm-hmm. You are exactly right. You understand what that house on the hill is supposed to look like. Or I might not think that. So we'll negotiate that a little bit until we are 100% in agreement on exactly what theirs are supposed to be. And then he will go and write the here statements. Where are we right now? Well, um, we need to hire two people and we don't, we don't have them. Um, whatever current day reality is. And usually um, people are better at the theirs than the here's or vice versa. So sometimes people are find it really hard to say what current day reality is, but then we work that out. So then we're all in complete agreement on what the here's are. And once you get the there and the here statement, figuring out what the path is, what how you're actually going to get from point A to point B is massively much easier than you ever thought it was. So then they write out the path statements. And this is one reason why people don't feel like they're being micromanaged is that what those path statements are is entirely up to them. I'm fascinating. Yeah. I might look at it and think, not sure that's going to work, but you, you try it. You Mm -hmm. just go right ahead and we'll, you know, we'll look at it in a month or two and see if it's working. Um, so really my only involvement is on agreeing on whether their statements are. They just take it from there. Wow. And what are the other two tabs? Oh, so yeah, the first one is just the overview tab. The, the final tab is what we call detailed logistics. And that's where you look at your path statements, which is going to have things like by October 30th, we need to blah, blah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the detailed logistics is all of the specific concrete tasks, which might be many that you put into Asana, the actual things that you actually do on an actual day. And Asana is a project management right. system mm-hmm. that you guys use. Yep. So that's kind of where the Gantt chart first starts yes. evolving right there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Huh. That is such a fascinating way to think about like project management because mm-hmm. you're what I love about that is you're everyone's getting an agreement mm-hmm. on the vision of where it's going mm-hmm. before you're worrying about the details. And then but there's also a place for the people who are here. Like, yeah, there's all like mm-hmm. that tension in a lot of groups where you have the people who are very real, mm-hmm. uh, like the realist versus mm-hmm. the visionaries sort of thing. And like the visionaries hate the realist because they feel like yeah. they're always <laughs> negative about their ideas. The visionary mm-hmm. and then the realist hate the visionaries because they think they're always like promising too much than what right. can be delivered. Yeah. But you're both people have a say and mm-hmm. a place in that. Structure. Yeah. So the implementers have a huge say in it. So all when I get involved in the there here path statement things, I'm really only wanting to make sure that we understand what the there is. I might look at the here statements to make sure that I feel like they're in current day reality, but Mm -hmm. they they mostly are the boss of that. And how long have you guys been doing this for? We started getting religious about that about 12 months ago, and it's made my life very so very much better And, and their life as well. With the with the size of your company, about how many of these documents do you have going on, or how many projects do you have going on? Well, right now we have about thirty. That's fascinating. What's been some of the changes from your staff level as this has been implemented? Like, do you feel like they're taking more ownership of this, or do they just find it's just better having this certainty where you know it's not the CEO coming in and saying, "I have this good idea, let's go do it." And in your head, you've thought about it a lot longer than usually you talk about it. You know? Well, I mean, my my poor staff, you know, they they like it because how many times have we had a situation where we get six months into the year and they show me their product and I'm like that's not <laughs> that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> right. right. That happens all the time. But no one wants to be in that situation, right? 
this is a way of completely solving that within a week of starting a project. Right. Wow. That's such a great point. I'm yeah. just thinking back to a conversation I had on Monday with one of my staff where I had thought about it for several hours mm-hmm. on this project we're going to do. Yeah. And I probably spent five minutes talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee are their statement, like what she thinks it yeah. is versus what I think it is, is completely off, but it's not written down. And like that's something we should implement not on ourselves immediately. <laughs> so one of the transitions that we had in our senior leadership team, and we just have an awesome senior leadership team, is we started doing these amongst each other. And then I really felt like that process was taking off in the company when they started doing it on their teams because they really found that it br- brings so much clarity and direction. That's great. And it got me off their back. That was their right. most favorite part. <laughs> well, and you have like very clear ways to show what you did this week. Yeah. You know, I checked off these 25 mm-hmm. things. And I need help with these two. That's great. So shifting gears a little bit, I think one of the interesting things about Ballotpedia, you have had over a billion page views. You have, you know, uh, one out of three voters visit your site in the six weeks before an election. Someone would think you're either based in D.C. or maybe without record, the Silicon Valley. But you're you're based in Wisconsin and your workforce is based all around the country as remote employees. How has that made you guys think differently not being in a hub? We are completely devoted to the normal person. In my view, the um, normal person, just regular old person out there that's trying to figure out something about these people that they're being asked to vote on. We we feel their pain. So we feel their pain more than people do who live in Silicon Valley or Washington, D.C., because they already know a lot about what's going on. And they want to think about it all the live long day. They want to think about it 24-7. And our recognition is that people want to be engaged citizens in our republic. And they want to be able to do that in a reasonable amount of time during Mm -hmm. an election cycle. And we are on their side. And I do think that the fact that our workforce is remote and is in so many different states... I think we attract people like that who who just want to help out the poor beleaguered person who just wants to be able to cast a vote that matches up with his or her values and not not have to study 500 hours a year to do that. Right. And I think that's such a good point. Like when you come from like a political background, I remember like early in my career, like not understanding why people wouldn't vote. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you're working on a campaign. This is all consuming. You're literally getting paid yeah. from this process. And of course you think mm-hmm. other people. And then now, like when I was mentioning on Monday, filling out my absentee ballot, you know, I just put my three kids to bed, you know, like I only had about 20 minutes to get that done. And the site was great because the few areas I didn't know, I could go look it up and they had great summaries and you could just figure it out. I think you're accomplishing that on just making it easy for normal people with busy lives. Yeah, well, thanks. We have a long way to go. There are 550,000 local elected officials throughout the United States. So at the state legislative level, there are 7,383 state legislators. And then on up, you know, through the federal level, that's easy. Or it's not like easy, but we we view that as being easy at this Mm -hmm. point. But it's pretty hard to find that information for this vast quantity of 550,000 elected officials, plus the people that are running against them. That's a huge and delightful problem. Do you feel like you have that solved mostly or like? We believe that we know what to do to solve it, but we have a ways to go to actually solve it. We're going to solve it in five years. And you have a uh, learning. We have a there here past statement. There here past statement. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One other question. You brought this up a little earlier. I just want to come back to it. You talked about you hire people with a learning mindset. How do you screen for that? Or maybe screening is the wrong term, but how do you determine if a person has that during your hiring process? 
with any growing business, I'm sure that they, every couple of times a year, they're like, are we asking the right questions in the interviews? Do we have any idea what we're actually doing here? And we've gotten a lot better at it. One of the systems that we use is Patrick Lencioni's Hungry, Humble, Smart mm-hmm. um, system, to, and we interview for that. That's really helpful because hungry, humble, and smart is indicative of a learning mentality. But I have recently concluded that working at Ballotpedia in terms of the intellectual effort involved is pretty much like getting a graduate degree. So I am inclined to think we need to boost up our efforts in finding people that actually literally want to do that. Oh, interesting. So almost it's on the job training, yeah. like mm-hmm. an apprenticeship rather than getting yeah. a master's in public policy. Yep. You can mm-hmm. spend a year working mm-hmm. with you guys and actually understand the intricacies of ballot measures all around the country yeah. or local I, elections. One book that just came out this year that I find really inspirational is called Ultra Learning. Oh, yeah. Scott Young's book. Love that book. Yeah, that's an amazing book. Yeah. And that that is really what all of the people that we hire turn out to be ultra learners or else they just don't make it. Are there certain things you try to have them do to help them learn things quickly? Or do you let them kind of adapt to their own system. What what works for ultra learning or for fast, accurate, efficient learning is let them try and then have very quick feedback. Mm-hmm. That's really one of the major tactics that he endorses in that book. Again, you know, that's just like the uh, personal trainer coming into the gym with you. Right. They watch you do a couple of biceps curls and then right then and there they say, oh no, actually keep your elbows down by your back a little further when you do that or whatever. So you need a lot of that in there. And, you know, what that means is that as an organization, you need to be committed to having someone there to provide that feedback in those crucial first few months on the job. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good point. I think sometimes you undervalue how a tight feedback loop Mm -hmm. drastically increases the speed of learning. Like we see that in our fundraising training where we do these video, we do coaching sessions, we record them on video, they get a video, they get to try it again and get really helpful feedback. And it's just amazing how in a few hours you can see someone just improve dramatically because you have all those pieces in place, quick feedback, good coaching, and then people who are willing to learn want to get better. Well, um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That is a good, great example of ultra learning. And I remember when I went to my seven-figure fundraising class, when I was told in the middle of the very first afternoon that I was now expected to go off in a corner and write a pitch, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then I go and deliver it 90 minutes later to a team of horrible evaluators. <laughs> I believe you being one of them. But right, then when you We're much nicer now. <laughs> when you're flying home, you're like, oh my gosh, I learned so much. But it's only because you're doing that experiential learning. You mm-hmm. are doing the thing and you're getting immediate feedback. It's tremendously powerful. Right. And it's great. You can incorporate that into mm-hmm. like all aspects of your business. Yes. And yep. do you find mm-hmm. after that first 90 days or uh, when you guys focus heavily on that, do you like, does it taper off or how do you kind of follow up with the people as they're kind of becoming more acquainted with working in the company? You go through rhythms of ultra learning for everybody. You, no one can be like massively cramming a bunch of new information into their head 12 months a year. Mm-hmm. So m- maybe somebody's going to quickly become an expert on um, a particular area of politics, something to do with state legislators. And and so they, they may be somebody who's been working for us for three years, but they've never learned that. So you're going to have a pretty intensive learning process with them. But then you're not going to do that again with them immediately. And that's true for also for all of the operational things. So for example, when we rolled out 
the they're here path statement process that everybody on our senior leadership team had to learn that in an right. ultra learning sort of a way. And did you, when you rolled that out, did you have like a workshop that you guys did or like an offsite or how did you We'd, get your leadership team right. on? So some t- for there, it was just one-on-one, okay. me, me working one-on-one with people, but it could very well have been a four-hour webinar mm-hmm. or it could be something that we did in an offsite. It just really depends. Okay. That's great. Just to wrap up, one of the things we do and like to do on this podcast is challenge listeners to take action with one thing that they've learned from um, bringing you, Leslie, on the show. So what from listening to all you've said, you've gone through so much great information. What's one challenge you'd give our listeners and nonprofit leaders to take action on? Yeah, to figure out how to kick off your implementation sequence of events after you've raised a whole bunch, ton of new money, which is what will happen to you if you use the seven figures fundraising schema of life. And then you need to learn how to kick off that implementation sequence. The one thing they should do is write to you and ask for that outline of how to kick off implementation. Okay, great. And we'll have a link in the show notes here so you can get that um, downloadable PDF. And just one follow-up question to that. Do you think that people should be thinking about this even before they're making these big asks? Where would you say that really thinking through what the implementation process would look like should start? I do hear some CEOs that come back and say, oh, my staff is so mad at me. (laughs) They're so mad at me because I went and raised a million dollars for some project and I never told them about it. And now they're mad at me because I never told them about it. I get that. Mm -hmm. Um, However, um, I think that your staff is going to be a lot less mad at you, even if that happens, because you know what? Sometimes that just happens because you're sitting down and talking to someone who's a donor and between the two of you, just on the spur of the moment, you cook up something truly earth shattering. That's Mm -hmm. the best thing ever. Well, you never told your staff about it beforehand because you never thought about it beforehand. It just happened. It was like magic. Um, so where you smooth out those implementation difficulties is by having a really awesome implementation sequence mm-hmm. so that no matter when anybody finds out about something, they're not going to be highly flustered and agitated and worried because they know they have a lot of confidence in the rollout procedure itself. Right. And they will get to weigh in on yes. the, their yeah. here path mm-hmm. and really get bought in yeah. to the vision and then the actual steps. Exactly. To do it. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating interview, Leslie. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and do this. And just want to say thank you for being on the show. And I think people are going to get a ton out of this episode. Great. And I, I will just say that if people do what you teach in your workshop, they will have the problem that I am trying to help them figure out how to solve. Great. Well, thanks yeah. again, Leslie. <laughs> I uh, look forward to more people having this problem um, because of good fundraising and then now being able to solve it pretty easily. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Seven Figure Fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks. Thanks.